0: Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Katie. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, An Anchor for the Soul, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews. Here's Pastor Nick.
1: Amen. Amen, good morning. Welcome to Whitefield. So glad to be here with you today. I'm really excited to be here with you studying God's word and and worshiping him. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews found in your New Testament towards the back. This morning, we are beginning a new series, one that I'm really excited about. The series is called An Anchor for the Soul. And if you think about what an anchor does, an anchor keeps a ship from drifting off. Without an anchor, a boat is kind of just at the mercy of the wind and of the waves, and any way the wind blows, wherever the storm takes them, that's where they will go. And, and many people, really, that's how they live their life, isn't it? They're just kind of at the mercy of whatever happens to them, whatever emotions or thoughts they might have. It, whatever happens to them, their circumstances, determines their faith and the well-being of their soul. And it's constantly changing based on whatever's going on in their life. But here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us it doesn't have to be that way. It can be different. The letter to the Hebrews tells us there is a hope, which if you have it, it is an anchor for your soul. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you from drifting. And that hope is Jesus. That hope is found in Jesus. In fact, that hope is Jesus himself. It is who he is. It is what he has done for you and all that that means for you. In this series, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. You know, the book of Hebrews is maybe one of the very best places in the entire Bible we can come to to find out who Jesus is and what he has done in all of its rich fullness. And so I'm really looking forward to this study. In particular, one of the things I love about this book is that maybe better than any other book in the Bible, it ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it shows us how all of it culminates in and really speaks of Jesus. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name and to get to express praise and honor and worship to you. Lord, we ask now that as we, as we study your word, Lord, this would also be an act of worship, that Lord, as we give attention to your voice, as we give attention to what you have spoken in and what you are telling us, Lord, that we would do this as an act of honor and worship to you as well. And Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you'd speak to specific things in our lives. And Lord, give us ears to hear. Most of all, Lord, we ask that truly we would see you high and lifted up in all of your splendor and beauty and glory. And Lord, that as you do that, that you would draw us even in a greater way to yourself. Lord, you yourself said, if I am lifted up, I will draw many to myself. And Lord, we ask that this morning you would be lifted up in our midst and that you would draw us to yourself. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever asked the question or or you've at least heard somebody else ask the question? If God loves me so much, then why is my life so hard? If God loves me and God is so committed to my joy and happiness, if he cares about me, Then why is my life so hard? The letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of people who were asking that very question. I think it's a very common question. I think those people aren't all that much different than we are, because a lot of people today, many of us, we ask that same question, don't we? See, these were people who had become Christians. But after they became Christians, their lives actually got harder, not easier. Their lives got harder, not easier, and that is not at all what they expected. That's the exact opposite of what they had expected what would happen. Their expectation, like many people today, is, okay, you know, if I do what God wants me to do and I live the way that God wants me to live, then the big guy upstairs is going to have my back, right? And he's going to help me. And things in my life, like if you think about a graph, everything in my life will constantly be moving up and to the right. Things will be getting better. There will be progress. There will be success. Everything, you know, my health, my family. My family, my career, I'll just be blessed and everything will always be moving up and to the right. And that's a great expectation, except when it doesn't work out that way. If like, for example, here are these people in this book, these people that this letter was written to, that is not what happened for them. For them, becoming Christians on the one hand, it didn't solve all the problems in their lives, but on the other hand, it actually created some new problems that they didn't have before. For them, their commitment to Christianity was actually leading to marginalization and even hostility from other people. And many of them began to look at this and say, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it for me to do this if this is what is happening as a result? You know what I mean? My life was actually a lot easier before I became a Christian. So what's the point? Maybe I should just go back to that. Maybe I should just go back to the way it was before. You know, every election cycle, you get these politicians and and you always get somebody who asks the question, ask yourself, is your life better now than it was four years ago? Which is a very, you know, subjective question. Obviously, for some people, it's going to be yes. And for some people, it's going to be no. But they say that always, you know, think about your life. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? Now, these Christians were asking that same question. Is my life better off now than it was before I became a Christian? And for some of them, they were thinking, Not really. I mean, in fact, if anything, I have more problems now than I did before I was a Christian. So maybe I should just give up on this whole Christianity thing altogether. I mean, if my life isn't any better than it was before I was a Christian, then what's the point? I think most of us live in a very different situation today than those people lived back then. But at the same time, I don't think it's really all that different when you look at it like this. Because there are a lot of us who, just like them, are asking this exact same question. If God loves me, if God cares about me, then why is my life so hard? Why, why aren't things easier? I'm doing, if I'm doing what God wants me to do, then why aren't things easier? You know, I've talked to a lot of people who've said, I tried out Christianity, but it didn't work for me. Now think about what they're, what they're really saying by saying that. They're saying, I tried it out, but it didn't work for me. That's essentially what these people were saying to whom this letter was written. I tried Christianity out, but it didn't work for me. So I give up. Maybe I'll try something else or maybe I'll just go with the flow and do what's, you know, maybe more acceptable culturally and I'll just say that I'm non-religious. I think that most of us can relate to what these people were feeling, what they were thinking, what they were going through. These were discouraged people who were seriously thinking about giving up. Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever thought about giving up? If you have, you can relate to these people. And the writer of this book, the writer of this letter, he writes to these people, and he writes to those of us maybe who are struggling with discouragement, and he says, hang on, just stop for a second. I need to talk to you about something. I need to tell you this. If you give up on Jesus, you will be making a massive mistake that you will regret, not only for the rest of your life, but for the rest of eternity. Don't do it. Because listen, to turn your back on Jesus because you're experiencing difficulty and hardship in your life, that's the opposite of what you could, should do. That's the exact biggest mistake that you could ever possibly make. It's something that you will end up regretting for all of eternity. You know, if you're considering giving up on Jesus because of the difficulties that you're experiencing in life, then clearly you don't understand. You don't understand who he is. You don't understand why he came. You don't understand what he's done for you if you would give up on it because of difficulty in your life. You see, if you did understand, if you really did understand who he is, why he came, what he's done for you, then you would be running towards him in time of difficulty rather than turning your back on him. And the difficulties of this life would cause you not to give up on him, but to cling to him all the more. So what you need to do is you need more than anything. You need to see Jesus. That's what the author's saying. More than anything else, here's what you need. You need to see Jesus. You need to set your eyes on him and see him for who he is and see the gospel in all of its fullness. See what he's done for you. See what that means for you because when you see that, it changes everything. It changes the way you view everything, the way you view yourself. It changes the way you view your life and your circumstances. It changes the way that you see other people, even difficulties and hardship. It is only in Jesus that there is a hope which is an anchor for your soul, that no matter what storms come your way, no matter what life throws at you, you might have your ups and downs, but you're not gonna be dashed to pieces because you're grounded in him and you have a hope in him that is bigger than life itself. You know, this letter is what we would call in our day, you know, we write a lot of open letters on the internet and and things like that in newspapers. We write an open letter. It's just kind of a public letter for anybody to read. And what this letter is, it's really an open letter to uh, people who are considering giving up on Christianity. This is an open letter to people who are discouraged and considering giving up on Christianity. And the author is saying, hang on, take a minute. Before you do anything, let me talk to you about Jesus. Let me walk you through this. Let me walk you through who he is. Let me walk you through what he did and why it's significant and why it matters for you. And so because that's who this letter is written to and that's the reason why it's written, the structure of this letter is cyclical. What I mean by cyclical is this. The writer follows a pattern throughout this letter, which is kind of different than any other book of the Bible, at least in the New Testament. This cyclical pattern he follows is this. He says, okay, he tells you something about Jesus. He says, here's Jesus. Look at him. Here's something that's true about Jesus. And then he says, therefore, do not neglect such a great salvation. And then he tells you something else about Jesus. And then he says, now listen, because of that, make sure that you don't harden your heart towards God. And there's this cycle all over again, telling you something about Jesus and then calling you to respond to it and not to turn away from him, but to give him your heart and your life. Throughout the book, the author is essentially building a case, one precept upon another, where he's saying, look at Jesus and realize, not only is he wonderful, not only is he glorious, not only is he beautiful, but also, don't miss this, he is our only hope. He is our only hope. Apart from him, there is no salvation. In him, there is salvation and life, rest and hope, relationship with God, but apart from him. There is no hope and there is no salvation. So don't miss him. Don't neglect him.
0: Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condone genocide in the Old Testament. Or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, facing nine common barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold or visit nickcady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now back to today's message.
1: Now think about this, imagine with me that you're on an airplane, okay? You're on an airplane and the flight attendant comes through and says, hey, who wants to wear a parachute? Because parachutes, um, they're free, we're just handing them out, you don't have to pay anything. This is a free gift from us to you, here's a parachute. And you think to yourself, well, hey, it's free, I like free stuff, and I'm an open-minded person, I've never tried on a parachute before, so I'll give it a shot. And you know, the flight attendant says, yeah, it's awesome, it feels like somebody's just giving you a big hug all the time. You think, well, I like hugs and I like new stuff. So I like free stuff, and so I'm going to try it on. And so you put on this parachute, and you're sitting there in your chair, wearing that parachute. But here's the thing. As soon as that parachute begins to make you feel uncomfortable, kind of sweaty, you begin to stink a little bit. Other people are looking at you. They think you look silly. What are you going to do? You're going to take it off because you're going to think to yourself, hey, what's the point of doing something? What's the point of wearing something that makes me feel uncomfortable? What's the point in that? Now, on the other hand, imagine if the flight attendant comes down the aisle and and tells you, hey, this plane's going down. We don't know how much time we got left, but the plane's going down. And the only way that any of us can possibly survive is if you're wearing a parachute. Well, then suddenly the way that you feel about that parachute is different than the way you felt about the parachute beforehand. Rather than being worried about being comfortable, rather than worried about comfort or fashion or, or other people's opinions, suddenly now you're clinging to that parachute with an overwhelming gratefulness that you've been given it. You see, in the same way, there are a lot of people who think this way about God, right? So many people view God as useful to them. So many people view God when they look at God, they think that God, they think of God as God is useful to me. He can help me out. He can make my life better. He can give me the things that I want. He can answer some prayers. He can help me achieve the goals that I have for my life. And then, you know, they'll do things for God with the expectation that if I do these things, then he will do other things in return. And they come in with a lot of expectations and a lot of hopes for how things are going to be. But here's what happens. If and when things don't happen according to your hopes your expectations, then there begins to be this thought, like the people to whom this letter was written, where you begin to think, well, you know what? If God is not being useful to me, well then why bother? Why why should I bother? If he's not being useful to me, then why do I even need him at all? But the author of this letter, I want you to see this, his goal is that we would no longer view Jesus, that we no longer view Jesus as useful to us, but that we would begin to see him as beautiful to us. That we wouldn't see him as useful, but that we would see him as beautiful. That we wouldn't worship him because we think he's useful, but we'd worship him because we see him as beautiful. That we would see him for all his worth, and that we would realize that the salvation that God offers us in him is so precious that it is worth any cost to embrace it and to follow him with our whole hearts. And so here's what we need to do. We need to fix our eyes upon him. Fix our eyes upon Jesus. That's what this whole book is about. It's about fixing our eyes on Jesus. And it begins with these words. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son. The title of today's message is The Last Word. And there are three things that this section brings to our attention. First of all, the big message here in the beginning is that God speaks. God speaks. Secondly, we're gonna see who Jesus is. And thirdly, we're gonna talk about what to do now that we know these things. So let's talk about this. God speaks. Unlike most of the letters, In the New Testament. Hebrews is unique because we're not told who the writer is, who who wrote the letter. You know, the custom of that time was that if you wrote a letter, you would begin with your own name and then you would talk about who you're writing to. So that's how you would start the letter. And that's why most of the New Testament letters begin that way. You have letters that say, Paul, an apostle, of Christ Jesus, to those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the believers throughout the world. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Christians of the diaspora. But this letter begins differently. Rather than beginning with the name of the person who wrote these words down, this letter begins by saying, God. The name of God, God, at different times spoke in different ways, but now in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. This is a God who speaks. You know, I believe that the reason why the writer of this letter did not tell us who they were, did not, you know, identify themselves, is because I think it's sometimes. Knowing who wrote a message can distract us from actually receiving that message, depending on whether or not we like that person or how we feel about, you know, them or who they're affiliated with. You know, earlier this year, I had someone, a friend of mine, recommend a book to me. So I picked up this book, I had it on Kindle, so I wasn't really looking at the cover of the book. And I was just reading the book and I I got about almost to the end, like I was like 80% done with this book. And then I noticed who the author was. I hadn't actually paid attention to who the author was up until that point. And as I looked at who the author was, I thought to myself, oh no, I've been reading a book by that guy. I don't read books by that guy. I would never read a book by that guy. And yet I had just read a book by that guy. And I'll tell you what, I learned a lot from that book. It was a really, really good book. But see, here's the thing. If I had known beforehand who wrote that book, who the author was, I probably wouldn't have read it. And if I had read it, I would have read it with a very critical and cynical eye. But because I didn't know who read it, I was much more open to the things that the person was saying. Now, I believe that the letter to the Hebrews is similar to that. The author, I believe, purposefully didn't give his name so that people who would read this letter would consider its content without being distracted or biased by who wrote it. There's been a lot of speculation over the last almost 2,000 years. As to who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, early church fathers like Clement of Alexandria attributed this letter to the apostle Paul because Paul the apostle, we know that he cared a lot about the Jewish people and that he was uh, very eloquent and he was very familiar with the Old Testament. So that would all add up to making it seem like it was Paul. Tertullian, another church father a little bit later on, he believed that this letter was written by Barnabas, who's somebody we read about in the book of Acts, being one of the early Christian leaders. The reformers, John Calvin and and Martin Luther, they suggested that this book might have been written by Apollos, who is another person we read about in the book of Acts. And it tells us about Apollos, that he was someone who was good with words and that he knew the Old Testament very well. There's only really one thing that we do know about the writer of this book, and that is that the writer is a man, It's a male, because in chapter 13, he refers to himself using a male personal pronoun. So that's the one thing we do know about the writer for sure. But whoever wrote it, one thing is, is for certain. They did not want the attention to be on them. They wanted the attention to be on God. And so this letter begins not with who wrote it, but with God who speaks, The author also, you'll notice, doesn't try to convince us here at the beginning of the letter that God exists. He just assumes that we believe that God exists. It's taken as a given. Of course God exists. The question is not, does God exist? The question is, who is this God? What is he like? What does he require of us? How can he be known? You know, we could talk about a lot of proofs for Uh, the fact that God exists. You know, there are a lot of things that we could point to, books and things like this, you know, 20 reasons for the existence of God. But we're not going to get into that because the author doesn't deal with it. But I will tell you this. Interestingly, uh, there are actually very few people in the world who are truly atheists. Like if you actually look at the statistics about atheism, you'll find that true atheism is shockingly uncommon, right? There are very few people. So I looked up some statistics. Here in the United States, 3% of the population does not believe in God at all. They are true atheists, 3% of the population. Now there are many more people in our society who would describe themselves as having no religion or being agnostic. That number is around 23 to 25%. So that's much higher. But the point is, the word agnostic means without knowledge. It literally kind of means ignorant. And so a person who is agnostic, what they believe is that there probably is a God, there probably is a higher power, but they're on the fence about what they believe about God. And instead of choosing something, they choose to choose nothing. But the point is this, they still believe that there is God or a higher power. And the fact is that the great majority of people in the world and in our own society, even if they're non-religious, 97% of people believe that God exists. And so I think it's a fair assumption to say, okay, the question isn't, does God exist? The question is, what can be known about who this God is? How can he be known? And the author of this letter tells us this. He says, the way that you can know who God is, is because God has spoken. God has spoken in various ways at different times throughout history. Now the question is, what has God spoken about? God has spoken in order to reveal himself to us, in order to, re- to reveal to us who he is and what he is like and what he desires from us. Furthermore, he has spoken to tell us who we are and why he created us and what he requires of us. You know, the Bible tells the story of God's revelation of himself, his self-revelation to humankind throughout history. And at times, as, as we read here, as we read throughout the Bible, we read about times when God appeared to people in different ways. Sometimes it was through messengers. Next week, we're gonna talk about angels. What are angels? And, and what's the deal with angels? You know, the word angel in Greek, ongelos, literally means messenger. That's all it means. In Greek, angel. Ongulos means messenger. We're going to talk about that more next week. So God at times spoke through messengers. At other times, God revealed himself in other ways. We know that to Moses, God appeared in a burning bush that wasn't consumed. To the people of Israel, he appeared in a cloud of fire. To Job, God appeared in a whirlwind, a tempest, a storm, kind of like a tornado. To Elijah, God spoke in a still, small voice. To Isaiah and to other people, God spoke to them through heavenly visions. But now the author tells us that God has spoken in another way, in a final way, in an ultimate way. He has spoken to us through Jesus. If you go down to verse 3, it tells us what he has spoken to us through Jesus. It says the Son, Jesus, is the exact representation of his character.